Welcome to Big Valley. And uh, for those of you over in the venue, we're glad you're here also via video. Um, if you're visiting for the first time, and I know on Thanksgiving weekend, a lot of folks are gone and a lot of different folks are here. We just want to welcome you and know that you are welcome in this place. Pastor Rick is... Uh, not here this weekend. He'll be back next weekend, though, as we're going to continue our little mini-series on the nativity. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Rick talked about uh, the wise men. And uh, next week, I believe, he's going to be talking about Joseph. This week, though, we're going to talk a little bit about the shepherds and the angels. And that little story that we see in the Bible that uh, we've heard so many times. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was at home and I was in my little, working in my little office and I heard a little knock on the door. It was a soft little knock. And, uh, huh, I heard that knock and I turned and started to get up and rather impatiently, I got another little knock. And so I cruise down the hall and I go to my door. My door is wooden and there's a window right there that I can see out of and I look out the window and there's nobody there. So I open the door and there is Dakota, my granddaughter, standing there. And she looks at me and she says, I'm five. <laughs> that was it. I'm five. This obviously was something that the world needed to know. It was her birthday. This was more than a statement. This was a proclamation. No hi, Papa. No hug. No nothing. I'm five. And then she came in my house and proceeded to act like a five-year-old. She's a great kid, and uh, I wish her love having her around. She's a lot of fun. She was making a proclamation. It was something of import to her. A proclamation is defined as a public and official announcement or to make known by open declaration. And that's what she was doing. She was making an open declaration. I'm how about you? Can you remember a time when, when you got this, this, this word of import, this, this statement that's more than a statement? It's a, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. It's a proclamation that makes everything different. I was working as a phone man in Denver about 34 years ago, and I got a phone call. It was my wife, and she was very excited. And this excited voice, she says, hi, honey. I said, hi, honey. And she says, I'm pregnant. Two words, 10 letters, and my life was changed forever. I mean, I was so excited, I hopped in my 1973 avocado green Chevy Impala. This is the definition of the lead sled, okay? This was it right there. And uh, I hopped in my Impala, and I drove home to celebrate this moment. And as you pull into my house, we lived in a duplex, and as we pulled in the, the, our side of the duplex, the, the driveway went right up to the front of the house. There was no yard or anything. The driveway just went to the very front edge of the house. And as I pulled in, my wife was actually right there. She's in the picture window right in front of the driveway. And she's smiling and she waves. And I smile and I wave. And I was so excited I forgot to hit the brakes. <laughs> and I ran into the front of my house. <laughs> now, the house was brick, which is a good thing. The house was no worse for the wear, but the... Lead sled, well, it had a memento of the announcement of my first child's birth. You see, that was a game changer, 
a game-changing proclamation in my life. The National League Divisional Series just a few short weeks ago, the New York, the New York, the San Francisco Giants are down no games to two to the Reds. They're going to lose this thing. And a guy named Hunter Pence, a player on their team, gathers a team together before game three. And he looks them all in the eye and says, I'm not ready to be done. I'm not ready to go home. It's time we start playing for each other. And he goes on and he gives this very spirited talk to the team. And they do that. They go out and win the next game and the next game and the next game. And eventually they go on to win the World Series, as everybody in this room probably knows. You see, when you, I, I was looking this up, this, it was this moment when people talk about that series and, and that the game-changing moment, that's the one that I found that people were talking about. It wasn't when Pablo hit three home runs, although that was a big deal. It wasn't for a couple other plays that really helped. No, it was in this one moment that this man spoke and everybody on the team listened and responded. Game changer. The Bible's loaded with game changers. From the Old Testament throughout the New, we see these game-changing announcements. In Exodus 34, 5, Moses has chiseled out two stone tablets with the commands that God had given to him. And he's standing on Mount Sinai, and the scripture says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the, the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And then it says this, Moses bowed to the ground and worshiped. You see, Moses got that this was a game changer. These tablets would be the, the guidelines, we, the, 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 what they would live by, the base rules for how they were going to live as a nation for the next several hundred years, these Ten Commandments. And God spoke, and Moses was in the plank position, boom, worshiping before God. Some game changers were welcome. In Deuteronomy 15, we read this proclamation. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts, this is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require a payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require a payment from a foreigner, but you must not cancel you but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. Ooh, that would be a proclamation I'd like to hear. Can you imagine every 7 years? No debt. <laughs> Oh, that would be, oh yeah, thank you, God. I mean, now God did that for a reason in the scripture because he was, he was concerned. He wanted the lands of the 12 tribes of Israel to stay together. And so he had developed this economy of, of, of loaning and, and, and stuff that made sure that the lands remained with the original tribes. That's why he did that. It's not an encouragement for you to go out and spend a lot of money. And then in seven years goes, I don't know you anymore. God said, I can have that time off. Some proclamations were not as welcome. Jeremiah 4, it says, Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. 
Flee for safety without delay, for I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. You see, about 700 years before Jesus, before Jesus came, the people of Israel had wandered far from the God. In fact, they had done it over and over again. The people would sin. They would follow idols. God would deal with them, but he would forgive them. He would restore them. He did it again and again. And then finally he said, "If enough is enough. And God sent armies from Babylonia and Assyria, and they conquered and took Israel into exile. It was a huge moment. The nation was never the same after that. And the Bible has a lot of game-changing proclamations in it. It does. But none is bigger. None is bigger than the proclamation we see in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Luke chapter 2 with me? And we're going to pick this up in verse 1. And, you know, as I, as I say that, I, I, just, I want to remind you, we, we often have, we don't often, we always have the passages that we're going to talk about up on the screens. We, we, we put them in your bulletin. We, we do that because we know people come to church and some folks are visiting. They don't have a Bible with them. You know, some folks are very new in the faith or uh, that maybe not have any faith whatsoever at this point in time. And so for them, it's difficult to, to navigate this, this book. But don't mistake that for us not wanting you to bring your Bible to church. And whether you got the hardback kind, I mean, I got two different versions on my, my, my iPhone. I got them on my iPad, just that you would come to a church. And then when we say go to the Bible with us, that you would do this because that practice, that's what helps you learn how to navigate the word of God. And we want everybody that calls Christ his Savior to know this book and know how to navigate around this book. So just as an encouragement, when I say that, man, I want to see you getting out your iPhones and bringing up your Bible software or bring an actual good old-fashioned paper Bible to church with you as we study the Word of God. We are in Luke chapter 2. This is God's Word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. In the first verse... Eight verses of this, this story, the stage is kind of set. The Savior is born. And we read that Caesar Augustus has called for a census. Caesar Augustus was the first dictator, if you will, of the Roman Empire. Before him, it was actually a Republican form of government. And they had a Senate, and, uh, and the Senate had real power in the governing of the empire. But Caesar Augustus had minimized their power, had overthrew that, and now he was a pure dictator, and he calls for a census, and he calls for it for good reason. The census set the tax levels that each province had to pay. So depending on how many people, that's how much tax you paid. And this also set the conscription levels for military service. Depending on how many people, that's how many soldiers you had to send to serve in the Roman army. 
Yep, even back then, there was a military draft. The Jews had to pay taxes. However, they did not send people to serve in the military. The Jews were so hard-headed and so hard to deal with. Literally, the Roman government just excused them and said, don't send anybody. <laughs> you're going to be more trouble than you're worth in our army. So just stay in Israel for crying out loud. But they did get taxed. It was also a time for Caesar to see how great he had become. How many people and provinces were now under his control. But God had a bigger plan. He used a pagan empire to fulfill prophecy. The scripture says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, Bethlehem was to be the place of the Savior's birth. And God simply uses that dictator to accomplish that prophecy. It was a prophecy in the Bible. That's where the Savior was going to be born. And God made it happen using Caesar Augustus. And Joseph and Mary go to this town of his origin. And this part of the story we know pretty well. You know, if you've been around much, you know the story of the birth. The town is packed because of the census. They can't find a place to stay. And they end up in an animal stall. And the Savior is born and placed in a feeding trough. It's probably no more than a lean-to, you know, that, that he was born. In, or, or a cleft cut out of a rock. That was a popular way to do uh, uh, little stables back then. And he, uh, the pictures are all real pretty of the little baby in this smiling, nice, spanky, clean manger. But that's not what he was in. He was in a feeding trough. And then the scene shifts from that to the shepherds just outside of time, out of town. And it's winter and, and shepherding changes during the winter. In the summer, you know, you, you, you kind of free range. The shepherds can sleep out on the range. The weather is very comfortable. And so the, they kind of roam in, in an open range and, and, and feed and stuff. But in the winter, they come back and they stay closer to town. And in this case, it's the strong possibility from everything I read that these flocks that sheep that were being cared for in this area, they're right next to Jerusalem. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are right next door to each other. And, and these sheep were probably the sheep used for temple sacrifices. They had to be close to the temple because the temple sacrifices never stopped. All year long, every day, sacrifices were being given to God. And the sheep, the offering of lamb was a big part of the sacrificial system. I only say that because I think it's apropos that the shepherds who cared for the sacrificial lambs were the first to be told that the lamb who would take away the sins of the world had come. It's a little irony there. Verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who, were lying in the, who was lying in the manger. 
When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all these, all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Game changer. The ultimate game changer. A baby is born, but there's so much more. Let's look at the proclamations within this proclamation that we just read. First of all, Jesus was sent here by the Father with a purpose. One day, God didn't just think this thing up and say, hey, I'm going to send my son down there to be a savior. I think those people need me. No. From the beginning of time, this was the plan. The scriptures make that clear. There was never a plan B in this. And it tells us his purpose. He came, his purpose was to save. Today, in the town of David, a savior is born to you. This is good news. Actually, it says this is great news, great joy. This is the biggest game changer of all time being announced. A savior has been sent right here to planet Earth to save mankind from his sins. The nation of Israel had been waiting a long time to hear this proclamation. Going back almost a thousand years to cry for a savior and God's promise to save is documented. In Isaiah, we read about this, this promise written hundreds of years before Christ came. It says this, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. This prophecy is given that the Savior is going to come and the recompense that's talking about is the works of Christ that he brings with him for our salvation. Jesus himself validates this 30 years later, after, 30 years after his birth. And uh, he goes to his hometown. And as he stops by, he preaches in the local synagogue, the local church. And in Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah from the chapter before saying this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he finishes this passage. And he goes and he sits down. And he says, today. Right now. Right here. In me. This promise has been fulfilled. He validates everything that Isaiah had been saying hundreds of years before. But that was really only the first part of that game-changing proclamation. There's much more to this. Not only do the angels announce his purpose, but they make clear his position. He's God. Verse 11, it goes on to say, he is Christ the Lord. Today in the town of, uh, of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That phrase, Christ the Lord, left no doubt about who Jesus was in the original translation. In that language, it simply meant he was the Messiah and he was God. Almost literally could be translated the Messiah, God. And again, Jesus validates his position as God. In Matthew chapter 16, he's walking with his disciples 
And he's, he's uh, having this conversation with them. And he says this. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am to his disciples? And Simon Peter, always the first to jump out with an answer, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. As we read through the Bible, I'm not sure any apostle got more things wrong than poor old Peter. Guy took a lot of shots. He was enthusiastic and he loved God, but he was impatient and he was impulsive. And that got him into a lot of trouble. But not this time. Jesus asked the question, who am I? And Peter says, you are God. And Jesus tells him, you got that one right, Peter. A revelation given to you straight from God the Father. The shepherds were told that a Savior had come. They were told he was God. And then there was one more part to this game changer. His promise. Peace. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. The baby in the manger is going to bring peace. But it is a conditional peace. It's not for everyone. It's not world peace as we understand it. Everybody will love one another. There will be no more wars. No more hunger. Not in this planet. The peace that Jesus brings is only for those on whom his favor rests. And what is God's favor? It's the gift of salvation for all who believe. Now, I did this poll in the last service, and it's a little bit of an older crowd, and they, hundreds of people recognized this. Years ago, there's a bumper sticker. I saw it all the time, and I bet most of you have seen this a lot of times too. And it was really popular, and it said this. No God, no peace. No God, no peace. How many saw that bumper sticker? Okay, oh God, man, hundreds of you. you. You all know that. That was just a popular. I like that. And theologically, that bumper sticker is correct. The peace of Christ, the peace that we ultimately are made for and long for, is only available to those who know God. And if you don't know God, You're going to try and find it in the world and you won't ever find true peace. It's not about world peace. Jesus makes it clear in this world, you will have trouble. Not until the return of Christ and the final judgment where there be real peace and and God's going to re-resurrect the world all over again. And it will be the world peace that we all long for. During his last night before the crucifixion, he spoke to all of his disciples and he said this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus is assuring them that although he's gone in the flesh, he's with them in spirit and will remain with them and us forever. We can rest in that knowledge. But he says the peace he gives is conditional. It only applies to those on whom his favor rests. In Luke chapter 8, there's a story of a woman and she has a terrible condition. She's had it her entire adult life. It's a condition that literally excludes her from participating in the life of the Israelites. She's sequestered most of the time. She can't go places. She can't do things because of her condition. And for years and years, she's tried everything she knows 
to get healed and it's failed. And she hears of this man, Jesus, and goes. Probably kind of subversively. She listens. She believes. And in faith, she reaches out as the people crowd around him and she just touches him. And in this moment, Jesus recognizes the touch of a follower and their need. And he locates her and he says this. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Boy, that had to be a game-changing moment for her. You're healed. Peace. And she was restored to the culture, to the people. For the first time in we don't know how many years or decades. I know many of you are in the room right now. And maybe you've been a follower of Christ for years and years. And we lose touch with that peace sometimes. The troubles of this world reclaim our attention. And we lose sight of the peace that God brings. Peace seems to be a far away concept. My marriage is going south right now. My kids, trouble, one's in jail. He comes home and he steals. My job is going away. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next month. That besetting sin that's been with you, it seems like forever. That one thing that you, you think you've got your arms around it. You think you've got it in control. And for a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever, it feels right. And then we stumble and we fall. And we feel the guilt and the shame all over again. When will I ever climb out of that bottle? When will I stop turning on that screen? Why do I take things? You want peace, but trouble occupies your mind. In another part of the Bible, this is called the peace that surpasses understanding. It's not the peace that you're going to find in this world. It's the peace that comes from Jesus Christ, from the knowledge that his son was born, lived, died, and was resurrected, that we will have eternal life, and we do have the promise of peace. Maybe this season it's time to tune out the noise of the world and to come back, touch the master, receive his favor, and find peace. That's the proclamation that the shepherds heard that night. The Savior has come. He's Jesus the Lord. He brings peace for all who believe. So what do we do with this proclamation that changed the world? Good place to start is let's just look and see what the shepherds did. First, they believed. The archangel Gabriel, and we find out a little bit later that it was Gabriel, came and made this incredible announcement. And their response wasn't, I wonder if that happened. Let's go to Bethlehem and see. Maybe that baby's there. Who knows? Let's go check it out. Nope, that wasn't their response. Their response was this, and this is a quote. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. You want the gift of salvation and the promised peace? You have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent to save the world. As followers of Christ and to the be as the best we understand the Bible, we believe salvation is a gift from God. You can't do anything to earn it. All you can do is receive it. 
And in order to receive this gift, you have to believe in the gift. And for some of you in this room, you want to be saved. You want peace, but you've never truly believed. You've really thought this through. You've tried to reason this whole thing out about Jesus and God and everything, and it just doesn't quite click with you. Maybe now is the right time to say, I believe. If you're one of those guys that are just always, or guyettes, that is just always thinking about things, (laughs) trying to make it all make sense, I'm going to tell you about a man named Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician. He was a physicist and a philosopher who wrote a defense of the Christian faith when thought and reason flourished. In the late 1600s, this age of reason is coming to think where they thought we can solve everything through reason and science. We can fix it all. And Pascal, a defender of the faith, wrote this. It's called Pascal's Wager or is also known as Faith's Wager. He said this. Either God is or he is not. Either God is or he is not. According to reason, you must take one position or the other. You can't take them both and you can't take neither. He either exists or he doesn't. You have to take one position or the other. He said, in a sense, you must wager. It's not optional. You must take the bet. Where are you going to place your reason? And you've got to remember who he was talking to back then. He weighed the gain or loss in wagering God is or is not. And it came down to this. If I wager that God is and I am right, and I have salvation, peace, eternity, all the promises of the Bible for those who are in God's favor will come to pass. That's the first. The second, if I wager God is and I am wrong, I've lost nothing. In fact, I still have gained. For me, for Bobby Fisher personally, I'm a better husband, father, employee, and man. Whether Jesus is real or not. Now, I happen to believe he's real with all my heart. I've placed my faith in my life and my trust in him. But, According to this argument, I still win by being a Christian either way. Now, if, I'm, if I wager that God is not and I am right, then I've gained or lost nothing because in the end there is nothing. We go back to being worm food. There's nothing else for us there. And fourth, if I wager God is not and I am wrong, ooh, that result is not good news. I will spend eternity without Christ. The Bible calls it hell. His point is this. Atheism is a terrible bet. It gives you no chance at peace. No chance at eternity, at salvation. Atheism, that is not believing in God, is just a lousy bet. Now, look, there's a lot more to following Christ than taking a cognitive bet and saying, "Okay, I'll take that bet. I'll go with there's a God. There's a call on your life. It calls for true belief. And so it goes deeper than that. But that's the argument that I would say to anybody in this room who doesn't believe that Christ is the Messiah. In a sense, you've got everything to win and nothing to lose by following Jesus Christ. 
Have you ever considered the pros and cons of faith in Christ? That's a good place to start. The shepherds did. In fact, they went from abject fear to faith in a rather short amount of time because of the appearance of the angels. You see, when faith overcomes fear, then we are ready to go to, to believe in God. Whatever your fears are, faith will overtake them. Not only did the shepherds believe, but they wanted to see this baby. They went to see this baby. They wanted to be in the presence of their Savior. In this day and age, it's a little different for us. See, back then, some of the people of Israel, they got to actually see Jesus. They got to touch Jesus. We can't do this. There's no viewing place at the Vatican where Jesus comes and hangs out in the afternoon and, 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 and waves. Yet, I want to submit this to you that you can be in the presence of the Savior by going and seeing him in the fullness of God's word. The shepherds and all the people had much less access to the Bible than we did. They had much less access to Jesus than we did. Most of the people saw him maybe once, twice, three times as he traveled and taught. I mean, his disciples and a group of other followers that were real close to him hung with him, but everybody else... And they saw him just a, a time here. They heard him there and they placed their faith there. You want to see God? He's here. His character, his love, his mercy, his acts, his promises, all here. You can see him in the fullness of God's word in a way that the Israelites never got to see God. I got a challenge for you. Between now and Christmas, consider this. Read the four Gospels. Just four of the 66 books in this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's 89 chapters in those four books. And if you read three a day, starting today, you'll get up on Christmas morning and read two chapters and you'll have read all four of the Gospels. And man, that is going to just help you see the fullness of God's love for mankind. What a great way to enter into the Christmas season. That's 15 minutes a day or less does not take long to read that. So this Christmas, go and see the Lord in the fullness of God's word. The shepherds believed, they came and saw, and then when they were done, they proclaimed. That's what it says they did. They proclaim his coming. And so I asked this question, how will your life be a proclamation this season? There's lots of ways to proclaim that uh, uh, Jesus is Lord. Obviously by our words, is one way, but I want to submit to you that your words won't make much difference unless your life is a reflection of Christ. That people can see Christ in you in the way you handle difficult situations, how you do your job, your countenance, your character. That's the key to being a proclaimer. It's being a follower. And don't be afraid to say so. I know some of you in this room are probably evangelists. You have the gift of evangelism. You just love to share the gospel. You just run into somebody at a coffee shop and all of a sudden you get introduced to them and say, hey, have you ever heard this passage? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And you want to sit right down with him right then and there and you want to talk about Jesus. And it just comes naturally to you. That's not everybody. Some of you are apologists. You're one of those folks that, oh man, you just love to defend the faith. And whenever those people come to your front door and knock and they say, I want to tell you about 
true faith and it has nothing to do with Jesus. And you say, oh, no, come on in. Sit down. Yeah, I'd love to talk with you about that. Uh huh. Yeah, no. And you're an apologist. You're a defender of the word of God. That's a great thing. Some of you are servants. You're proclaimers by the very way you serve. You can do that. You can proclaim the gospel in the way you serve. Maybe for some that that's even comes hard. Here, here's a way you can do it. Let me get my phone out right here. Camera. Okay. Uh, can we get the lights corrected for me here? Uh, oh, yeah. See, that's good. Wave. Oh, that was a good one. All right. Hang on. I got to post this. Okay. I want to post this on Facebook. There we go. There, there, that. Oh, no, no. Come back. Come back. All right. There you go. Facebook. All right. You're right there. Uh, cancel that. And send that right there. Okay. You all are on Facebook now. I'm glad you all could uh, be with us. And guess what? I, I, last hour I put in, I just said, I'm having a great time of worship at my church with my brothers and sisters. You can just, you can proclaim on Facebook that Jesus Christ is your Savior. This is the season to say it. Anything that you see that reminds you of the goodness of God, post it. Let people know, hey, I'm not afraid to say it. I love Jesus and I see him in everything. Let them see that. Maybe, maybe you could just do it this way. These tickets that we, we uh, have put in each of your bulletins. And we want you to use these as invitations. They're not really tickets. You don't need them to get in. They kind of look like one. But all this is is an invitation for you to invite somebody. Maybe one of the ways you can just proclaim this season that the Savior has come to save mankind is to invite your co-workers, your neighbors. We encourage this a lot to come. You can be a proclaimer just by doing that. You don't know what's going to happen if somebody who's never been here before, maybe even never darkened the door of a church, shows up because you invited them. And God wants to use them in a special way. Here's the angel's proclamation. His purpose? To save. Jesus came to save. His position? He's God. Nothing lower. He's God himself. His promise, peace. The peace that surpasses understanding. It's a much greater peace than the peace that people strive for on planet Earth. And our response, believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent to save the world. Go and see him in the fullness of God's word and proclaim his coming. Pastor Scott. All right, we're going to sing together. Let's all stand. Those of you in the venue, stand with me. Let's sing together. Go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching O'er silent flocks by night Behold, throughout the heavens There shone a holy light 
go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that jesus christ is born down in the lonely manger the humble christ was born and brought us god's salvation that blessed christmas morn go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that jesus christ is born one more time so go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that jesus christ is born that jesus christ is born that jesus christ is born ah. For you, in this Christmas season, believe that Jesus is Messiah, sent to save the world. Our altar ministry is open right after the service. You go straight through those doors right there, and we want to invite you to come in. Let us pray for you. Maybe God is compelling you right now. It's time. It's a bet that you've decided you want to take. We want to pray with you. Maybe you feel like you just lost touch with the peace that uh, surpasses understanding. Come let us pray with you. Just maybe we can help you to reconnect back in. Get those troubles where they're supposed to be. Maybe some of those troubles are just really hard on you right now. And it, it's, it's an illness. It's a condition. Something happening in your life that you just want prayer for. And prayer is one of those ways that we get to connect with God at any time. We'll have pastors and elders in there that would love to pray with you. Believe. That Jesus is Messiah sent to save the world. Go and see him in the fullness of God's word. Got a challenge out there. Read the four gospels. 15 minutes a day. Christmas morning. You finish that challenge. Wouldn't that be fun? Just to see the fullness of the life of Christ. As we enter into this Christmas season. And then finally. Proclaim his coming. Live a life that is a reflection of Christ. Start right there. Make sure you're living a life that is a reflection of Christ. And then use the gifts you have to proclaim his name. All the way up to invite a friend. Come to the Christmas concert. This season, this Christmas season, will you be a game changer in somebody's life? Go. Be a game changer. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Yeah.